Today's reading is Matthew 9, 9 to 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In his book simply titled Messy, author A.J. Swoboda writes these words. I once heard a guy say that Santa is the ultimate hipster. He works one day a year and spends the rest of it judging you. He goes on to say that Jesus is like that for a lot of people. And Jesus often gets his reputation by virtue of his association, his connection with people who claim to be his followers, who name themselves after him, Christian. If we Christians represent Christ, then what kind of reputation are we giving him? If we truly are little Christ's, and that was the the original intention behind that labeling of Christian, if we really are little Christ, then how are we representing Christ to people around us? Well, that's what we've been exploring in the past six weeks on Sunday mornings here at Grace, and we've been asking what it looks like to, look, to live out of our identity as salt and light. See, Jesus names his followers as salt and light in Matthew five thirteen to 16. And it's an identity that Jesus gives to us. It's not something that we achieve, and that's good news for us. But why this metaphor of salt and light? Well, it's because it's part of God's story, to, his plan to bless the world. It goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 where God says that he wants to bless the world through Abraham and through his offspring because it's through Abraham that he's going to work his plan to reconcile humanity to himself. And so through Abraham and through Israel, God wants them to be a light to the world and to bless the world. And when Israel fails to do that, and that's basically what you can read about in the Old Testament... Then Jesus comes onto the scene, and Jesus is the one who's going to fulfill the promise to Abraham to bless the world. It's through Jesus that God's blessing is now going to go to the world. And so when Jesus, before his death and resurrection, Jesus gives his followers some commands in Matthew 28, and he says, in your going, make disciples. And essentially what he's saying in there is, you guys are going to be the ones who are going to fulfill what I started. And through you, I want to bless the world. Through the life that I give to you, I want you to be the ones who now give that life to others and to bless the world. It's the blessing of salvation, the remedy for humanity's alienation from God, and it's the creation of a new humanity being remade after the likeness of Jesus who's called the second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15. That's all part of the, the, the beauty and the grandeur of this blessing that God entrusts to his followers to bring to the world. And so to follow Jesus is to share in the life of Jesus, which also includes sharing in the mission, God's mission, of bringing Jesus' life to the world. Jesus wants our lives to bless others with his life. That's basically what we are called to do if you're a follower of Jesus. 
And that requires living as salt and light in relationship to people. And by light, it means that we are called to live in relationship to people so that they can see Jesus in us. But at the same time, our lives are to be distinctive so that they, can, so that they look like Jesus. So it's both salt and light. It's connection and it's distinction. And that's all by way of review of the past six weeks. So I want to finish this six-week focus with something that's making a huge difference in the way that, that I'm seeking, that I'm learning and seeking to, to live into that identity of being salt and light and representing Jesus in the world. So I want to share something that's actually quite personal and very practical. And here it is. <clears throat> To be salt and light, to be salt and light to others means I need to learn to love like Jesus loves people. To be salt and light means I need to learn to love people like Jesus loves people. And to love people like Jesus means that love has to get dirty. A love that looks like Jesus is a love that gets dirty. What do I mean by that? What does it look like for love to get dirty? I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew 9 in your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's one under your seat. And it's page 814 in that Bible. I'm basically going to make just two observations today. All right? Just two observations in response to the question, what does it look like for love to get dirty? And it's taken from Matthew 9, which you heard read for us already. And the first observation I want to make is this, that Christ-like love crosses boundaries often set up to expel others. Christ-like love crosses boundaries often set up to expel others. And I'm indebted to Richard Beck. I read his book last year, Unclean. It became very seminal for me. Look at chapter 9 of Matthew, verses 9 to 11. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So let's pause there. What are these Pharisees saying? What is their problem with Jesus here in this setting? Well, a little bit of background is important to understand, and that is that the Pharisees are religious Jews who are seeking to be observant to Torah. For those of you who might not have a background in the Bible, Torah is, is a word that means law, and it refers to the first five books of Moses, often known as the Pentateuch. And so the Pharisees were scrupulous about wanting to pay attention to Torah, paying attention to the first five books of Moses. And, and according to their view, Torah functioned to create boundaries, to determine who's in and who's out, who really belongs, who's really part of the people of God, who really is the true Israel. Now, given the fact that they had had so many different nations that had gone through Israel and conquered it, conquered that land, and and mixed in other people who were not true Israel, that was a, a big issue for them. Who really belonged to the people of God? And so part of boundary maintenance is distinguishing between pure and impure, between clean and unclean. And by pure and impure, I'm not talking about, you know, you get your hands dirty by working in the garden and that's impure or unclean. This is about being distinctive. And those distinctions are laid out in the first five books of the Old Testament. And so in this particular situation, they're saying that Jesus' table guests are impure. That Jesus knows the boundary and he should observe it. And according to these Pharisees, this purity is maintained through expulsion. 
namely expelling these tax collectors and sinners from the life of Israel. So if Jesus really cared about holiness and purity, which were markers of belonging to the people of God, then he would avoid contact with this class of people, namely tax collectors and sinners. Unless you think this is kind of maybe just kind of a one-off, this isn't the only time that Jesus ran into this set of expectations. Turn to Luke 7. Keep your finger here and turn to Luke 7 so you can see this functioning again in, in relationship to Jesus. Luke 7, 36 to 39. And in Luke 7, 36 to 39, we read this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So once again, we see these expectations come into play in which Jesus, if he truly belongs to Israel, should know the boundary markers of what is clean and unclean, and he should know what constitutes a sinner, what constitutes someone who is on the outside, and he should avoid contact with those people. And that was the logic there. This is also a problem for the early church. When you come into Acts chapter 10, you see Peter, and Peter has to have a vision from God in which he is told in that vision that he can go associate with the Gentiles. Because it took a vision from God for Peter to be convinced that that this gospel, this good news concerning Jesus was for the Gentiles as well. So this became a real point of contention for the early church to get over that hurdle of moving outside the boundary of the people of God, namely Israel, and to move to the Gentiles as well. So you see, this is something that that is a, a big issue in the New Testament. So back to Matthew chapter 9, what's the logic of the Pharisees in this situation? Well, the logic, their logic, is that Jesus becomes polluted by his association with sinners. Jesus becomes polluted by his association with sinners. But here's what they miss. Here's what they miss. It never crosses their mind that Jesus, that contact with Jesus might actually cleanse the sinners. They're only thinking that Jesus' contact with these sinners makes him polluted, makes him impure, makes him unclean. But they don't consider that the reverse might be true. That contact with Jesus might actually cleanse the sinners. Turn over to Matthew 8, just one page back from Matthew 9, to see this in action. Right before this incident, in Matthew 8, 1 to 4, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Just by way of information, if you read the Levitical law, you know that if you could, not have, you could not have contact with a leper. They were to be set outside the camp, and anybody that had contact with them became impure, and there was, there was, there was strict regulations on the purity code for coming back into the camp if you'd had contact with a leper. And so this leper comes to him and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. 
He's, he's obeying the, the purity code and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. So in this particular incident, Jesus reverses the power and the direction of pollution. Rather than it making him impure, he reverses it, and he's the one that creates the cleansing. He's the one that makes the impure pure. Jesus' touch makes the unclean pure. So Jesus' contact cleanses rather than contaminates him. And Richard Beck calls it a positive contamination. So what's the logic of Jesus' action here in Matthew 9, 12 to 13? Well, he says what it is. When he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus cites mercy over sacrifice as his operating guideline. See, the Pharisees frame the issue of table fellowship as an issue of purity, whereas Jesus frames it as an issue of mercy. The Pharisees seeking purity pull away from the sinners, but Jesus offering mercy moves toward the sinners. In other words, Jesus refuses to sacrifice these people to become clean, as defined by the Pharisees. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So in refusing this response of repulsion, Jesus brings transformation. This is where Beck says, in this incident, we see Jesus' love manifested as a form of inclusion. When you stop to think about it, it, what he's saying here is that love is a boundary issue. Love is a boundary issue. Love presupposes an outside. Love presupposes that there is an outside, that someone is excluded. See, those I choose to love, I'm including in the boundary of myself. I don't choose to love everyone. Certainly not in the same way that I might love my wife and close friends. So there is a boundary. Love is a boundary issue. And when we choose to love, we're choosing to include people within the boundary of ourselves. And so to love like Jesus is to intentionally cross boundaries, to welcome, to include for the sake of showing mercy and bringing life. So what does it look like for love to get dirty? Christ-like love crosses boundaries often set up to expel others. Which leads to the second observation, and that is this, that Christ-like love can appear to look soft on sin. Christ-like love can appear to look soft on sin. And this is where I'm heavily indebted to Richard Beck for some observations. If you've been around Christians or you've been around churches, you might have heard the adage, hate the sin but love the sinner. If you have any gay or lesbian friends, they'll tell you they've heard that frequently from Christians. That's very off-putting to them. In commenting about that adage, Richard Beck says, the idea is that we can, with surgical precision, make a cut between our affections toward human persons and how we feel about their behaviors. Beck argues in his book Unclean that such surgical precision is psychologically untenable. It's incredibly hard to not let a person's behaviors affect how we feel about him or her. If you're a parent, that's true, isn't it? If your kids are continually just do the opposite of what you ask them to do, it's psychologically untenable 
and I'm sure you use that language with them, it's psychologically <laughs> untenable for me to separate your behaviors from my affections for you, or what I think about you. Try that on them today, all right? <laughs> I mean, it's true, it's true in marriage, it's true if you have a roommate who's driving you nuts, it's, it's by some behavior, we, it's, it's just hard to, to make that real clean surgical precision in that. We, that's just not the way we function. And this is where it gets messy. I want to read to you from Beck, which he explains this. He says, when we come to embrace human beings... Our strong feelings about their behavior do get marginalized. And to those looking on, that embrace looks like we are getting soft on sin. And here's the provocative claim of unclean. That's true. When you embrace sinners, there is a sense in which you're pushing their sin to the background. That is, when you love sinners, there's a sense where you're looking at the person first. Sin has been removed as a perceptual filter, as a central focal point. And that perceptual shift, moving the human being into the foreground and the sin to the background, has a psychological feel, an emotional tone that could be labeled going soft on sin. Sin has been perceptually decentered, so that the human person can stand in front of you and has become less emotionally charged. A perceptual and emotional rearrangement has occurred. He says, my point in all of this is that it's really hard to keep love pure. When you love sinners, and I mean really love them, as in affectionately and not just verbally and theologically, a sort of contamination is involved things get a bit blurry and messy in your heart, and that's why we say things like love has to get dirty. Beck then cites Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book titled Ethics. Just as God's love entered the world, thereby submitting to the misunderstanding and ambiguity that characterize everything worldly, so also Christian love does not exist anywhere but in the worldly, in an infinite variety of concrete worldly action and subject to misunderstanding and condemnation. Every attempt to portray a Christianity of pure love, purged of worldly impurities, is a false purism and perfectionism that scorns God's becoming human and falls prey to the fate of all ideologies. God was not too pure to enter the world. This might be a challenge to some of you, but... I want to tell you from my own wrestling with this how this has shaped my own understanding of Jesus' love and has given me freedom to take risk in loving others. You see, to love like Jesus means seeing people as more important than perceived boundaries. It means seeing people as more important than perceived boundaries. It means I can step fully into loving them while trusting the Spirit's work to transform them. And that's really important. Every word that I just said there is really, really important to parse out. You see, I can love them, but I can't transform them. That's the Spirit's work. And the question is whether I'm going to play my role and to step into loving them, which I can do, and trusting the Spirit to transform them in the way that the Spirit wants to work. That's Jesus' work. So to love like Jesus means crossing boundaries to welcome those who might be excluded 
And to love like Jesus means that it might often be messy and it may be misunderstood, oftentimes by our own religious people. And to love like Jesus means taking these risks, though, for the sake of bringing life to others. And therein is the the question, is that a risk that I want to take? And so I leave that tension in the air for you this morning, not seeking to resolve it, but to have you look at your own life and how you are choosing to love and the risks that you're willing to take. The people that might be around you that might need to be included, that may feel excluded, the boundaries that you might need to cross over to love people. Just take a moment and just sit in that for a second and then I'll pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for um, the ways that you're showing me more about yourself and how you desire to show each of us the beauty of your love, the boldness of your love, the risks that you are willing to take in order to bring life to people. Jesus, I ask that um, you would show us what it looks like in our own personal situations to be willing to cross over boundaries to love people and to be distinctive in that love, to show them your type of love, Jesus, in order to bring life to them. And I ask that we would see a real movement of your love that would be so inviting and so breathtakingly beautiful in watching our love be used by you to transform lives. And so we ask that you would do that and ask that you would raise our imagination to how you want to use us in the days and weeks and months ahead. In your name, Jesus, amen.